Welcome to the Make Books Travel Podcast. I'm Marlene Seegers, co-founder of Two Seas Agency, a California-based literary agency that represents publishers, agents, and a select number of authors from around the world. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing international industry professionals who make books travel. For instance, from manuscripts to published book, from one language to another, or from page to screen. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 17th episode of the Make Books Travel podcast. Today's guest is Rohit Bhargava. Not only is Rohit a number one Wall Street Journal bestselling author, a much-demanded speaker worldwide on disruption, trends, and marketing, and an adjunct professor of marketing and storytelling at Georgetown University, he has also co-founded his own publishing house, Idea Press Publishing. Tusi's agency handles foreign rights in their books, whose topics mostly focus on business, marketing, leadership, and creativity. Since we started working together in 2015, we've managed to secure hundreds of rights deals for them. All right, so much for the self-promotion. I've been curious to know more about how Rohit evolved from being a published author to becoming a publisher himself, and what impact this has, if any, on the books he publishes. His most recent book is called The Non-Obvious Guide to Virtual Meetings and Remote Work, so I also wanted to pick his brain about how to best prepare for the virtual meeting marathon that lies ahead for so many of us, instead of attending the physical Frankfurt Book Fair. So I'm happy to introduce to you Rohit Bhargava. Hi, Rohit. Thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? You're very welcome. I'm doing well. I've been looking forward to interviewing you because you're one of the rare people that I know of, at least, who can call themselves both a best-selling author and the co-founder of a successful publishing company, which in your case is Idea Press Publishing. And I'm sure you have a lot of insights to share with our listeners, thanks to this unique position of being an author and a publisher. But uh, could you briefly introduce yourself first to our listeners and, and outline your professional career? so far? Yeah, of course. I have spent most of my career working in marketing and branding. Uh, I've lived in uh, a couple of different countries. I was born in India. I lived and worked in the Philippines and in Australia, um, most recently before coming back to the US. And I'm now based in Washington. And like you said, I mean, I approached the world of publishing by being an author first. And that's very much the philosophy of our publishing company, that we put our authors first. And I think that the intent behind it and why we created it, why I created it in the first place was because I felt like as an author, I was not put first by the publishers I was working with. And I was generally working with large publishers. And so I wanted something better. Hmm. Right. That's something that I'd like to discuss further, uh, further on in the interview. How about the um, the impact of the pandemic on Idea Press Publishing's activities? In the COVID nineteen has been a central topic of this podcast. Actually, um, recently, one of our listeners emailed me 
told me he's dubbed it the COVID-19 Publishers Podcast. So Arnaud, if you're listening, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how how about, yeah, how, what have you felt uh, since, well, when, when the pandemic really uh, struck in the US starting in March? Were certain publication dates postponed? Any book tours canceled? Yeah, tell us about it. Yes, we 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 did uh, actually postpone uh, a few releases, slightly. Uh, we also saw definitely a negative impact in terms of our book sales because so many bookstores were actually closed. People were moving online, but that certainly didn't replace a lot of the uh, revenue and sales that were coming from retail channels. And specifically in our case, because we focus on business and nonfiction books, uh, mm. the airports which has been a major channel for us in the past. And, and obviously, since people are not traveling, uh, the airport sales were, were dramatically mm. down. And that was a big impact for us. But at the same time, what I've seen is many more people who are like me that would likely release a new book, like a big idea book, maybe every three years, every four years, but rely on doing speaking public speaking and professional keynoting all of our events have have gone away and so we ha find ourselves at home with perhaps more time and we start thinking well i should just write a new book right now <laughs> and so we've seen a, a big influx in more authors coming to us and more opportunities to find and acquire new titles because a lot of those people are sitting down and saying well i'm just going to fast track and do my book sooner rather mm -hmm. than in another year or two when i would have done it Hmm, interesting. And those books, are they the topics that they propose? Are they um, a little bit a sign of the times, like kind of books about resilience or out of the box thinking because we're in such an unusual situation? Yeah, some of them. I mean, I think that it, it would be more fair to say that many of them have an element of the current sign of the time. So uh, the the common topics. I mean, we're we're because of the verticals that we're in. A lot of our books tend to focus on uh, the themes that you would expect popular business books to do: leadership, marketing, sales, innovation, disruption. Uh, I mean, these are all common themes in many of our books, and and those have obviously an impact or, or relationship to what's happening in the pandemic right now. And I think that some of them are, are specifically around that. I mean, I myself wrote one of our guidebooks in our non-obvious guide series, which was specifically around virtual meetings and remote work. We've had mm -hmm. a couple of other books that, that have sort of virtual in the title or subtitle in some way. So those are very directly related to this time right now. But I think more broadly, most of our books have some relationship or at least mention what's happening now. Mm -hmm. And how about uh, going back to the sales? Did you see an increase in demand for your titles in digital format, so ebook and digital audiobook? We did see a little bit uh, of a spike in, in demand, but not as much as you might think. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think what, what has been more interesting is seeing how the sales have shifted. So, for example, bookshop.org has become a much more uh, popular place for many people to order books because at least what happened in here in the US was for some time people were ordering books that they wanted online but Amazon had deemed books non-essential yeah and so they were not shipping books like usually you could order it in the US you can order a book in and within a day or two you'll get it from Amazon and now Amazon was shipping in three or four weeks so a lot mm -hmm. of people started saying well who else can I order these books from that I'm going to get it from more recently more more quickly and that was an opportunity for 
not only bookshop.org, but also many small retailers to have their online presences and have people buy books from multiple places. And it changed the way that authors started sending people to different places to buy their books outside of Amazon as well. Yes, and, and bookshop.org, it was only recently started, right? Not not during right, the pandemic, yeah. but it's no, kind it, of a... Um, it was great yeah. timing, actually. I remember mm -hmm. I went to a uh, an ABA event in uh, January, the American Booksellers Association, mm -hmm. in January. And uh, the gentleman who runs bookshop.org, Andy Hunter, he was presenting there about the concept. And it's a quite unique concept, not only because they are a online retailer of books, but because they have a social mission, which is that they give a percentage of all of their sales and profits back to independent bookstores. So there's this whole cause-related element to it that really resonated with a lot of people. And let's talk a bit about how IdeaPress Publishing came to existence. You already mentioned uh, how you felt as a published author before you started your publishing house. So what, what was your main motivation to evolve from being a best-selling author? Um, you were with a well-established, reputed trade publishing house. Um, yeah, what brought you to launch your own publishing house besides continuing to author books and doing many other things that many other professional activities that you're involved with? You know, so so many things, but I think the what a lot of people assume is that the main reason I did it was to maximize my revenue from sales. And mm. that was only kind of the secondary, maybe even the, the third reason to do it. The first reason, uh, interestingly enough, was quality. I wanted to be able to control the quality of the printing of the book so that we would do beautiful books. And I am... Mm. Perhaps because of my marketing and branding background, I'm used to working with amazing designers. I'm used to being able to control everything from like the print quality to the packaging to all of these things. I mean, that's the world that I come from, working with mm -hmm. world-class design. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I brought to my own publishing house in the sense that I want to be able to control these things so that when someone picks up one of our books, there's no way that they would think, oh, this is self-published and print on demand. I mean, they'll pick up one of our books and, and know that this is a well-done, properly edited, beautifully printed book. And that was my number one motivation. That was why I wanted to start the publishing company. And then all of the other things in terms of having more control, treating our authors better, having a vastly different royalty structure, uh, treating our authors like our customers and, and, and real people and, and helping them to make their books successful and not stand in the way. I mean, all of those were benefits of it, but it started mm -hmm. with quality. Mm -hmm. All right. And speaking of printing, do you, where do you print most of your books? Or does it really depend on whether, yeah, on the type of book that you're publishing? So far, we have done 100% of our printing either in the United States or Canada. Uh, we okay. have not sent any printing anywhere else. And, and as I mentioned, we have not done any print on demand. Mm -hmm. And I have I did hear about some challenges pre-pandemic uh, about having books printed in the U.S. because there was just there was a big backlog of there were not enough printing companies anymore. I don't I'm not quite sure about the reason, but is yeah, that something that you felt? So there were two things that were happening uh, that we experienced. One was that there was some consolidation and acquisitions in the yeah. world of printing where smaller mm -hmm. printers were being acquired by larger ones, which means there was less choice. Uh, the other thing tends to be very seasonal, I think, in terms of just overcapacity. And so anytime mm -hmm. that we have books, for example, that need to be printed within the so-called holiday season, which is books that need to come out in time for Christmas – 
there's always a backlog. Uh, mm. The nice thing about business books, though, is that they don't tend to be focused on the holiday gift season. You know, yeah. these aren't like um, these aren't like books about Santa Claus, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, to some degree, with good planning, we can avoid some of those peak seasons and instead go for maybe times during the print cycle that may not be as popular and therefore we don't have as many issues. That's one reason. Mm -hmm. The other reason is just we've become a good customer for many of our printers. And because of that, uh, we get access to uh, their resources and we're able to get our books printed in a reasonable time frame for us. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And what was the biggest challenge that you faced when you started IdeaPress Publishing and how did you address it? And also, when was it exactly that you started the company? So we started five years ago, 2015. And I think my biggest challenge starting it was me. <laughs> and I say that um, because, you know, I came at this being a, an author and not a publisher, and I never worked in the publishing industry. And so there were many things that I didn't know. And uh -huh. the way I solved that challenge is I went to the people that I did know who had been in publishing for 15 years, 20 years, longer sometimes. And I said, who should I be talking to? Like, how do I get smart about this quickly? And who do I need to have conversations with? And then I would get recommended to people who sometimes were in different roles, sometimes who had retired, sometimes who would never talk to anybody. And then I would get introduced to them. And I would literally go to them and say, I'm just desperate to seek knowledge. I want to learn. I want to get smarter. What would it take for me to pick your brain for an hour, two hours, three hours? What would, mm -hmm. it, what would it cost? Could I pay you? And some of them would come back with, with, they'd say, well, you know, my consulting rate is $500 an hour. And mm -hmm. then I'd say, okay, can we, can we talk for three hours? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, the price was not an issue for me because yeah. I was paying for my own education. Yeah. And to the degree that that has paid off over and over, it definitely has. And whatever the amount was, right. And that might seem for some people, that's like 500 bucks an hour. That's crazy for me. I was thinking, well, that's a relatively little amount to invest in my own education because now five years later, I'm benefiting still from having mm -hmm. learned all these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you sought out a, a certain number of mentors in a way. I right? did. Yeah, mm -hmm. I did. Mm -hmm. And what would you advise people who are thinking about starting their own publishing company, H how, how to get started? Well, I think that this is is one good approach. Uh, I think mm. the other is to really understand what makes you different uh, from other publishers mm. that are out there. And for us, we have a very specific story that we we talk about. One is this idea of being author centric, and how unique that is. But the other piece of it is that we have a very transparent, if I might say, uh, without using too colorful language, a, a no bullshit policy. And what that means to us as a publisher is we're very transparent about where we make money, where we don't. We don't overpromise to authors that we will do all sorts of things that we then won't do. Uh, we say, this is what we focus on. This is what we do. And we'll give you great advice on how to do other things. But we're not just trying to squeeze you to make money everywhere you know, mm -hmm. every, on every level of this game. For example, I mean, this is one perfect example just as an author that I know which is many of my friends who are authors, when they've gone with a large traditional publisher, the amount that they dislike their publisher is directly proportional to how successful their book has been. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. And the reason for that is because the more books you sell, the more money you end up making for your publisher under most deals, no matter how big your advance is. Eventually, when you earn out that advance, now most of the revenue from every book sold after you've earned out that advance is going to the publisher, not to you. And so you become more frustrated with that. And so to prevent that, we've done two things. One is that we have a very high royalty share. We give our author 70%, which is extremely high. Wow. And the second piece is once they sell a certain number of books, it immediately escalates to 80%. Not because they've negotiated that as part of their deal, but because I, as an author, think that's fair. Because at Mm -hmm. a certain point, I would have recouped as a publisher what we spent kind of getting the book out there and getting it up to where it was. And so the more successful that book is, the more the author should benefit from that, I believe. And so I don't Mm -hmm. force my authors to negotiate for that type of deal. I just give that to them as a standard part of our contract. And Mm -hmm. that's an example of how we think differently about this model of publisher and author and how they work together. Hmm. And how uh, how about advances? I mean, there has to be some kind of break-even point for you, right? Um, is there... Yeah, there is. And, and so we mm. have a couple of different models. Uh, mm. But generally, we don't give advances. Um, the way we acquire projects is based on the value that we're providing to the authors and the fact that they know they're betting on themselves and they're going mm-hmm. to make much more money. And so The reason this works is because, to some degree, we can shift the risk involved to Mm -hmm. be shared or more on the author's side. And, you know, the thing is, remember, we're dealing with with business professionals in many cases who have consulting audiences, who have corporate people who will do bulk buys. I mean, they have the ability, they know already, to sell thousands and thousands of books. So if you say to them, here's your break-even point, and let's say, for example, in order to break even with all of these costs, you have to sell 3,000 books or 4,000 books, they can mm-hmm. look at their audience and say, that's no problem. I can easily do that. And mm-hmm. so now what you're saying to someone is either you do the the predatory traditional publishing deal, which is you get some money up front, but we make way more money a year from now than you do, or mm-hmm. you get less or zero money up front, which is how we do it. And a year from now, you're going to make way more money and have way more control. And most mm-hmm. smart entrepreneurs and business people who is who, which is generally who we're dealing with, will say, that's a much better deal. I'll take that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting. And how uh, how do you find your authors? Or do they find you? Or I guess it's a mix of both. Most of the time, it's been the best type of, of inbound marketing. And I'm a marketing guy. So I mean, you asked me mm-hmm. a marketing question, which is a dangerous place to go with me. Um, <laughs> but uh, go but ahead. We, you know, we get our authors through what I think is the best type of marketing, which is word of mouth marketing. Uh, someone mm-hmm. refers us. And the thing that's happened for us, and I think what happens in in pretty much everywhere in the world, is anyone who's thinking about writing a book for the first time, the first place they go is someone who they know who's written a book because they ask for advice. Hey, I'm thinking about writing a book. How should I do it? Who should I approach? So aspiring authors ask published authors. And the thing is, the more published authors who know about us, the more they talk to one another. And so as a result of that, what ends up happening is anytime anybody's thinking about writing a business book and they're thinking about going a non-traditional route, or even if they're just evaluating the ways that they can do it, our name will come up more and more. Mm -hmm. And the more successful books we have that hit a bestseller list that are renowned um, authors who have done books traditionally and then come to us, which is a, a 
good number of our projects are authors like me who've gone traditional, been frustrated, said, I'm not doing that again, and said, we want a better solution. And then they come to us and do their next book with us. Hmm. And that has been a big, big um, selling point because after they come and do their book with us, they come back to us for their next book. Mm -hmm. And that's really powerful. Right. Can you, speaking again about the, the pandemic, obviously it has has a big impact. What what does a typical workday for you look like right now at during the pandemic? Well, right now it's, it's actually been quite focused on uh, talking to new prospective authors. Uh, because mm -hmm. like I said, we've had a lot of people coming in the door uh, for us. So we have a number yeah. of projects that we pushed into the fall, our fall season. Uh, and those books will be coming out. But we're in, in August right now. So we're still in sort of acquisition mode, planning mode for a lot of these books that will be out in September, October, November. Mm -hmm. So so my my day generally is focused on a lot of those conversations, plus moving to the final phases of planning and support for the books that are going to be coming out. So you mentioned that books that you're um, in the process of acquiring right now can can be published as early as September, October, November. So you have a very short. No, 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 no. Those, or, yeah, or sorry. That for those, next yeah. year. Okay. Yeah, no, All right. Those, I was like, yeah. whoa. <laughs> <laughs> no, you would have you would have known about those already. I was so like, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Those. Are, no. I meant those as two. Yeah. Two separate things. So the books that are coming out in September, October, November are kind of ongoing already. The ones we're acquiring right now, those will be for next year. Mostly. Next fall. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah. Oof, I'm reassured now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to make you panic. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and this, this brings me just to a quick question. because you also, you also teach at Georgetown university, right? I do. I'm a, I'm a very occasional professor though. I kind of teach okay. when I, when I have time for it in between my uh -huh. schedule and they're very kind about allowing me to, to do that and control my own, uh, teaching calendar. Okay. Cause I was just going to ask you how, how that now looks like with, with the pandemic. Um, yeah, it's a I good question. I am, uh, yeah. you know, even before this pandemic hit, I was not planning on doing a course either over the summer or fall semester this year. Mm -hmm. So uh, I actually don't know. I haven't, um, I haven't had to deal with that uh, okay. when it comes to my course yet. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And let's talk a little bit about your, your reading um, preferences or like books that you're reading um, besides the ones that you're involved with professionally. Do you, have you read anything recently that you're really blown away by and that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I was just reading a, a book that I find fascinating. So I actually spotlight a new book release every week uh, as part of my weekly show, my weekly video show called Non-Obvious Insights. So mm -hmm. I'm always Which looking. Is on those YouTube, are not right. Uh, yeah, it's on YouTube, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. and 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 those are not books that we publish. Those are just books that are out there that have captured mm -hmm. my interest. Uh, mm -hmm. The one that I recently recommended, which I've actually been reading alongside my son, because it's written for high school age um, kids as well as adults, is a book called True or False, which is written by a, a CIA analyst from the U.S. And mm -hmm. what she talks about is being a CIA analyst and trying to decide what's what's true and what's false and what's real and what's fake. Mm -hmm. And it's got all sorts of exercises in there. It's sort of written almost to be used as part of curriculum. And mm. it's such an important skill that I think a lot of times we don't teach to 
uh, well, we don't teach to adults, <laughs> but we definitely <laughs> don't teach to kids uh-huh. either, which is media literacy and this mm-hmm. idea of being able to spot what's new, what's real, what's fake, and, and just be savvy as an individual so that we don't get misled by by lies or by by news that is is manipulated or fake. And that's really been that's been one of the books that I've been reading recently that I have really, really enjoyed. Interesting, very important, especially at the moment in these very confusing times. Do you um, recall the name of the author? Otherwise I can yes, look it up. it's uh, it's Cindy Cindy Otis is the name of the author author. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll put that in the show notes anyway. Um, and then before wrapping things up, I uh, just wanted to ask you about one particular topic, and you already mentioned it earlier, um, virtual meetings. And it's an essential topic of your most recent book, uh, The Non-Obvious Guide to Virtual Meetings and Remote Work. Now, as you said, we're in August, we're heading towards the fall season, which typically is a season of travel for myself and many other publishing professionals. As we all meet at the Frankfurt Book Fair in October to discuss titles in which to buy or to sell rights. And even if at this moment the physical Frankfurt Book Fair is still set to take place, many, including myself, have decided not to attend physically and switch to virtual meetings instead during the week of the Frankfurt Book Fair. And this is all uncharted territory. I mean, we have been in virtual meetings since the start of the pandemic. But this is going to be next level, um, a week-long virtual meeting marathon, basically, and Zoom fatigue and all that. It's real. So what are your th- top three tips for our listeners, and me included, to <laughs> help us survive and perhaps even thrive during the virtual Frankfurt Book Fair? Yeah, I think that there are there are a number of things that it's so interesting to me because like like you, I've been on lots and lots of these Zoom meetings. I, I do a lot of virtual meetings and I've also done virtual keynotes and things like that. And so I, I think I'm at one extreme level because as a professional speaker, I have set up my home studio. I have a multi-camera set up with a expensive switcher that can go back and forth and, and kind of studio quality in my house. Most people don't have that. Mm-hmm. But I think that there is a number of things you can learn from that that you can duplicate yourself. So the first thing I would say is uh, forget about the video. Focus on your audio first. Uh, get a good microphone. Even if you use one of those headsets that makes you look like a call center operator, it doesn't look the greatest, but you can be guaranteed that everyone will hear you and you will hear everyone perfectly. Huh. And that's hmm. so important. It's so important because you really – we've all had that moment when we've been on the conference call and we're like, Oh, you know, I only caught every third word of what you said. So I'm not exactly Mm -hmm. sure what you say. And then especially when you're dealing with people who are from different countries, different languages, Mm -hmm. different accents, uh, Mm -hmm. it's even more important because now it's just so challenging to know exactly what someone's saying. So invest in audio is my number one tip. Hmm. Uh, get a good microphone, get a good headset, whatever you can find, read Amazon reviews, you know, read reviews from any place you go, watch a couple of YouTube videos. I mean, it's really not that difficult. I'm hmm. happy to suggest a audio setup that d- you can do this at every price point. I mean, you can spend hundreds of dollars and have a beautiful studio quality microphone, or you can spend 20 bucks and just get a pretty good one and mm-hmm. you're fine. Uh, hmm. So there's no budgetary reason why anyone should have a bad microphone or rely on their computer speakers to do mm-hmm. audio. You should have something that you're plugging into your computer because it right. really doesn't cost much and it makes a big difference. So that's my number one tip. Uh, 
The other thing is that a lot of people, for some reason, they think it's a good idea to sit with a window directly behind themselves, which ends <laughs> up creating this weird silhouette where all you see is like this shadowy person that kind of looks like a person. And it's <laughs> terrible, terrible lighting. So do not sit directly in front of a window behind you. That's the worst possible lighting you can have. Now, you can invest in like ring lights or all of that sort of stuff, but just turn around, like face the window and you'll have much better light instead of putting mm-hmm. the window behind you. That's mm-hmm. the second thing that I think people mess up all the time. And and the third is is probably a tip that that you've heard many times before, but it's so important that that is worth repeating, which is keep it short. Uh, keep it as short as possible because our attention spans have already been uh, under assault and, and challenged, but especially when it comes to virtual and Zoom fatigue and all of the other reasons, like keep it short. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we've started um, scheduling our meetings and we were sticking to the, the traditional format of the, the physical meetings, which is half hour. And I, I think it's also important, and I've spoken with a few other international um, publishing people about this, is to, to take breaks because I think it's not going to be the same when um, meeting in person, I think there's a certain energy that you get, especially when you're at a trade show. There's always this really great buzz going on, and it's you get a lot of energy for from that. And sitting in front of your computer, in front of a screen, you just don't get the same kind of energy. So just to <laughs> kind of yeah, just to right. to to connect to what you mentioned with keep it short. I think it's also keep it short in um, just like work in blocks and uh, take a, take breaks more often that you than you would if you were to meet in person um, because it's just it's not the same I think the the, the fatigue level is 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 real and is is very challenging so, yeah I, I agree with all of that mm-hmm. do you have a, a, a preferred tool to, that you use like zoom or teams or because I I've seen I've just looked at my at the schedule <laughs> so far and I see that it's all over the place like sometimes it's teams yeah Zoom, yeah, because mm. of the number of events that I do and the number of, of brands and customers I work with, mm-hmm. I'm usually in a situation where it's not up to me yeah. what it's used. Uh, usually it's not my choice. So yeah. what I've done is I've just become adept at using all of them because uh-huh. that way, no matter what somebody's using, it's not that I have to use it for the first time. Mm-hmm. So to me, part of it is just becoming familiar with the tools. Uh, and mm-hmm. knowing that, look, if I, I mean, it's sort of like when I used to travel to, to all these different countries, right? I mean, I can't immediately go to Brazil and know how to speak Portuguese, but I can at least learn how to say obrigado and, and a few things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and just by those little choices, you end up standing out as somebody who at least respects the culture and, and makes the effort to learn a few words. And I think mm. that we should similarly treat technology the same way. Like if you're going to become literate in, uh, in a language to be able to say a few things, like do the same thing with the technology. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it's, it's the same. I, um, for me, I think it's going to be just whatever the other person proposes. I, um, and I think that's what's, what we've been doing so far when accepting the meeting. So I'll definitely spend a little bit of time to get familiar with the, the technology that I'm less familiar with at the moment. Is there anything that I missed, any topic that you'd like to to bring up here before we um, we say goodbye? 
<laughs> no, I mean, I think that that uh, it's been a great it's been a great overview. I mean, I always appreciate talking to you because of the perspective that you've got on what's happening in so many different places. And I think that one of the, the big things that I talk about professionally and what I write about professionally is just the importance of having a uh, a perspective that is not narrow minded. And I think I personally have benefited from the fact that although I live in in a country, America, that that can often be very narrow minded in terms of just paying attention mm-hmm. to America and nowhere else, uh, I've lived other places and I have a lot of connections to people who go f- to or come from these different places. And I think that that those voices are so important. So the work that you do to help take ideas from one place and help them uh, succeed and and thrive in a different place is such an important thing to offer uh, to people because we need these ideas to travel and not just be popular in one place. Because the more we have these ideas going from place to place, the more we can start to understand each other. So not to make it like too big of a mission, but uh, Mm -hmm. I think that's important. I believe in that. And I think that, that we all have a a piece to play in that. So uh, that's, that's just what I, what I value about this and why I think uh, it's just important. Like the work you do, the work I do, the work we all do in the world of publishing to help these ideas spread is, is important, like more important Mm -hmm. now maybe than, than uh, ever. Mm, yes, no, I I definitely agree with that. And yes, it's it's always a pleasure to to talk to you, Rohit, also outside of the podcast. But thank you now for for setting aside the time to to speak to me. And um, I really look forward to um, connecting with you at some point again, perhaps in person. I think the last time we saw each other was in New York last year's book yeah, expo. Yeah, at uh, right? Book Expo. I think that yeah. probably was the last time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, fingers crossed that that's going to happen again next year but in the meantime let's keep in touch virtually thanks again Rohit and have a nice day thank you you too bye bye thank you for listening to the make books travel podcast I hope you enjoyed it check out the agency's website 2csagency.com for more information and resources about the international publishing scene. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a positive review. Merci et à la prochaine!